Coming up today, the plight of museums, the surge in plastic and why cinemas are engaged in an elaborate game of post-lockdown chicken. Welcome to the Wired UK podcast, your essential weekly catch-up on all the big stories in tech, science, business and culture. I'm your host, James Temperton, and joining me this week are Natasha Bernal. Hello. Anna Kawala. Hello. And Matt Reynolds. Hello. This was the week when Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg said advertisers will be back on the platform soon enough as a mass boycott of the social network over its hate speech policy continues to grow. In the comments, which were leaked to the technology website The Information, Zuckerberg also said that Facebook was not going to change its policies or approach on anything because of a threat to a small percent of its revenue. This was also the week when the Indian government banned TikTok and 58 other Chinese-owned apps, including WeChat, ShareIt and Clash of Kings. The move follows deadly border clashes between Chinese and Indian soldiers. Boris Johnson came up with two new slogans this week, Build, Build, Build and Jobs, 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 to illustrate an economic revival plan inspired by US President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. However, he has come under fire for not being specific about the amount of jobs or buildings that his plan will deliver. And it was finally the week when the UK town of Leicester went back into lockdown after it saw a spike in coronavirus cases. Non-essential shops have been shut and schools closed again, but the government has been criticised for being slow to act and not providing police with enough guidance to enforce the new restrictions. On Boris Johnson's brilliant slogans, I often find the best way to get anyone to do anything is just to say the word of the thing that you want them to do over and over again until they do it. It's, It's a psychological thing, isn't it? If you say something three times, people will believe it. Is that is that true? Yeah, as far as I, I've been reading about it, because apparently it, it reinforces. So the first time you suggest it, the second time it embeds slightly, and the third time you're activating someone to, to do it. I'm not sure how valid it is psychologically, but Amit is probably going to de- debunk me in a second. I, I thought I thought if you said something three times, they appeared and killed you. Oh, like mm. Bloody Mary, you mean? Yeah. That sort of yeah. thing. <laughs> that Boris Johnson has the Bloody Mary approach to politics. <laughs> if we say something... Three times exactly, it will come to pass. All right, let's give it a go. Amit, great fact, great fact, great fact. <laughs> what have you got for us? I think this is a great fact. Uh, vultures are attracted to the smell of gas and have been used by gas companies to detect leaks. Uh, this is because uh, the chemical that gets added to natural gas, which is obviously odourless, to make it smell so that humans can detect a gas leak uh, is the same chemical that's given off by rotting animal corpses, which vultures obviously love. Can't get enough. So, um, yeah, gas companies have used uh, turkey vultures to to search for gas leaks uh, on their pipelines. It's a great fact, and if it seems familiar, that's because you tuned into the Wired Podcast pub quiz earlier this week. Um, We put it out on the main podcast feed last time, but we decided to take it solo from here on in. So if you did join us earlier in the week live for the podcast pub quiz over Zoom, you get two cracks at Amit's brilliant fact. If it's new to you, then you missed out on a great pub quiz and Amit being crowned pub quiz trivia champion. Um, Unfortunately, there's no way to listen back to it. So you'll have to be there for the next one, which will be 
uh, trailing on the regular podcast in a few weeks' time. Okay, uh, Matt Reynolds, you've also shamelessly copied over your fact from the pub quiz. So what did you learn this week? That's, I, you know, I was thinking it's nice in this era of, you know, constant records that we've created something that just instantly evaporated into the digital abyss. No one, yeah. will, no one will see Natasha's lovely drawing again. <laughs> Thank goodness. Broke my Zoom this morning. <laughs> The fact that I brought on the podcast yesterday and bringing it back today was the barcode was invented in 1949, but at the time, no one had invented a way of shining light bright enough to make it readable or having computers small enough to process the information within that barcode. So it was another 25 years before the first supermarket barcode was scanned, and that was a bag of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Chewing Gum. Gum. It was a great fact earlier this week. It's still a great fact now. Natasha, please read out your fact that people who watch the pub quiz have already heard. I feel like it's new every time I hear it. Um, my fact was actually thanks to Matt Burgess, who told me that baby hedgehogs are called hoglets. Hoglets are only hoglets. <laughs> I can't even say anymore. Hoglets are only hoglets for up to three weeks in June and July when they tend to be born until they go off into the wilderness by themselves and become hedgehogs. So I thought it was really cute. Um, Lovely stuff. Thank you very much for that. Uh, I learned this week that the image on the Wikipedia entry for human is a picture of a man and a woman from Thailand. That's not particularly interesting in itself, but the story of how it came to be is back in 2003, the image used on the page for human was the famous pioneer plaque. It's that image of an outline of a white man and a white woman. There's sort of a map of the solar system and some other markings to understand that we understand numeracy and... Um, and atoms so um, that was used for a really really long time Um, but it was the cause of so much debate and endless changes as to who should come to represent humans on wikipedia um, that it, it was never there was never a decision made that stuck around for very long then in 2008 the image of the man and the woman from thailand was added and it's remained there ever since it's a fairly unremarkable image of a couple standing on the edge of a field in northern thailand but that is what we have chosen to represent humans on wikipedia there was a really interesting article written by the u.s edition of wired about this a couple of years ago which is well worth digging out it sort of shows um, how much care and attention is given over to wikipedia entries okay on with the stories amit museums are in trouble it turns out they are in trouble, although no. this isn't my story. <laughs> it isn't your story, is it? Natasha, museums are in trouble, I like the it way, turns out. Yeah, I, I've, I've slowly cracked my way into culture because everything, as you know, is a business story, um, in my opinion, so there's no bounds. I, I wanted to actually kick this off by asking you three a question, which is what is your favourite museum and why? Really quick, um, Matt Reynolds. My there's a museum in Prague which is a museum of really really small things and there's like Jesus on a poppy seed and a a, a head lice playing a violin and you see them all through microscopes so it's a really good place to get an eye infection so hmm. that's James good. Hamilton. Uh, the Horniman Museum in South London, um, which is home to an awful lot of weirdly taxidermied animals, including a walrus that was sent back from the arctic the people that stuffed it didn't know how big a walrus was so they just kept stuffing until they could stuff no more so this is a ginormous like three or four times bigger than it should be 
walrus with a tiny head and it's still there to this day as an example of early botched taxidermy it's brilliant it's very cute Amit. Uh, this is very uh, year ten school trip, you know, year five school trip. But I quite like the Natural History Museum, and I also really like the London Transport Museum. Both very basic choices compared to Prague and South London, but uh, those are my favourites. I love it. Well, a few years ago, I lived in High Barnet, and there's a place called the High Barnet Museum, and it's great because they have basically garbage, and it's things like you know Charles Dickens's second cousin once stayed in High Barnet, and we had the napkin that she used at dinner. It's it's great. It's um it's sort of like if you're desperate and you need to make a museum, what are the things you put in there? <laughs> kind of have a tenuous link. Um, so it's it's fabulous. But yeah, so basically, it doesn't matter what, what museum you might have chosen. Um, they're obviously an intrinsic part of our culture. And crucially, since the Victorian times, you can see a lot of the best and most famous works of art, treasure and ancient objects for free in the UK. But that might not be the case for much longer. And this is what this story is all about. So before the coronavirus crisis hit, some museums and galleries across the UK were already struggling to make ends meet. Alongside visitor donations, they were relying on big donations from corporate sponsors who would either put their names on ticketed exhibitions, hold corporate events or even sponsor artists. And the problem is they relied on this income from venue hire. So you can you can rent out, for example, a Natural History Museum, your favourite museum, Amit, for weddings. So you can, you know, rent out the main hall um, for like fourteen, fifteen thousand pounds a few years ago. Um, you can rent out the Raphael Gallery at the VNA in London uh, for a wedding reception starting at fourteen thousand five hundred for the night. Um, Coldplay did a leg of their twenty nineteen tour at the Natural History Museum. You can you can basically scale things up and and make it a profitable business where visitor donations would just not be able to do that so events like these where attendees number in the hundreds are unlikely to be taking place for the foreseeable future and even when they do begin to happen again no one knows if a museum is the kind of expensive venue that people want to book so my understanding is that things in the museum and non-profit sector have always been pretty stretched i'm guessing this is hitting a a sector that was in a slightly bad place to begin with. But, you know, luckily we have a government that really likes the arts and it really likes science and it really likes culture. So things are not going to collapse after these three months of closure, are they? Uh, I mean, I I think some people would debate um, your point about the government really liking culture and arts, given that they have been absolutely starved for many years now. So while you're right, though, I mean, while the Arts Council and National Lottery Heritage Fund stepped in with some emergency funds and the government rolled out its furlough scheme, there's very, very little indication at the moment of what is going to happen with the cultural sector after coronavirus. It's projected to lose £74 billion in revenue due to the coronavirus crisis. So they've been museums, galleries across the country closed for three months, no income whatsoever. A lot of them were in dire straits already. So you might have uh, big ticketed events at major galleries in London, but for those who are outside London who are not that popular, who don't have uh, you know streams of revenue from tourists, this has been a really, really incredibly tough time already. And then you pile on coronavirus where you've been closing your doors for three months with no foreseeable end. It's been very, very difficult. So the good news to all this is that the hiatus of galleries could soon be over. So Boris Johnson gave the green light for museums, galleries and many other places in England to reopen on July the 4th, as long as they maintain social distancing and other practices. So some museums are planning to bring in one-way routes through rooms and will encourage people to wear masks inside um, and also will ask their workers to do the same. 
Um, on their websites, a lot of museums have started planning exhibitions for uh, this autumn. So they've been quite optimistic. So the RA Summer Exhibition, for example, has been moved to October. But the Association for Leading Visitor Attractions found that only 16% of people surveyed said they wanted to actually go. So we're not expecting lots of people to flock back to galleries and museums anytime soon. And there is the danger of another lockdown. So if you've got the tapering off of the furlough scheme, which a lot of galleries and museums have relied on to just be able to pay people's salaries tapering off in October and nothing to replace it and the potential for a, another lockdown to take place, it could be absolutely catastrophic. So the head of the Mary Rose collection, which is a world-renowned art collection of artefacts from Henry VIII's excavated boat, actually suggested that precious artefacts from the collection might need to be auctioned off to raise the money necessary to keep the lights on. So really dire stuff. It really is a case of selling the furniture to keep the lights yeah. on um but will galleries and museums even want to open they've been given this date of july 4th but we're seeing a lot of businesses that are being given the opportunity to open that are looking at the maths and saying well if only 15 percent of our customers are coming through the door but we still have to employ this many people to safely and successfully run our business then one outweighs the other the maths doesn't add up and they just don't open and then they're in even more dire straits because even though it's less money disappearing down the pan they're still not getting any money in yeah it's a huge catch-22 because you have to employ more people uh, to just kind of fulfill all of those coronavirus safety precautions that the government's put in place you're going to have to look, invest a lot more in uh, sort of signage and you know hand washing and sanitization stations and you're going to have to factor in uh, the fact that people will have to queue a lot longer and fewer people are going to arrive so you, you have Right, people are faced with basically catch 22. So, independent museums, well, often run by volunteers, really want people to come back, uh, but, but it isn't financially viable to open for the time being. So, a lot of organizations have said that they expect around 30% of their regular visitor numbers to come back, and this is being optimistic. But the mounting costs surrounding reopening were entirely unanticipated. So, some people are describing it as three winters in a row. At the beginning of the pandemic, people didn't really appreciate all these costs and now. Now they're going to be spending a huge amount for fewer people with less money coming in. And independent museums that rely incredibly heavily on commercial income, such as gift shops, cafes, admissions and venue hire, are finding themselves in the situation that they can't have any of those open in a safe manner anyway. So a lot of them will have to stay closed. We spoke to Owen Gower, who works at the Edward Jenner House. This is the historic home of Edward Jenner, who was the inventor of the smallpox vaccine in Gloucestershire. And he explained that while a crowdfunding campaign to cover the house's costs for this year was successful, it still doesn't make sense for them to reopen right away. He says that a lack of significant and sustained investment in recent years means that the house's financial situation will always be incredibly precarious. So assuming they can find somewhere that's open and, and, and they want to go, what can people actually expect to see if they do go to a museum uh, from this weekend, which, which is when, when they're reopening technically? Yeah, so you can expect a massive queue. Obviously, if you go to any major gallery, you're going to be waiting outside for a long, long time because fewer people will be allowed in. Um, One-way systems are going to be in place in most museums and galleries and fewer people are going to be allowed in specific rooms. That means that the most popular um, parts of exhibitions, permanent exhibitions, are going to be, um, you know, obviously the ones where people are just queuing outside uh, and waiting for them. But but there might be um, a kind of 
silver lining here because although there won't be any you know temporary exhibitions and ticketed exhibitions probably available because they all shut down during the coronavirus crisis you might have a small upside in the fact that because there are such few people that are allowed in one room at a time for once you might be unlikely to be blocked off from seeing a Caravaggio, a Klimt or a Matisse by people holding up their smartphones so there is a small silver lining for those who decide to venture out and be brave so when you uh, enjoy that unobstructed view of a matisse you can uh, marvel at the failing structures that uh, help to financially support museums and uh, wonder how long you'll be able to gaze at it i mean it's a it's a big problem for countries emerging out of lockdown we're being encouraged to go out and do stuff mm. but i know we've been talking about this around well not the office around slack and on zoom calls are people are you guys going to be rushing out to go to your favorite restaurants and bars and museums and galleries? Is anyone planning sort of a, a post-lockdown outing? No, not at all. I mean, it's, it's, it's really, nothing has changed if you think about it. And I think the sad thing thinking about museums and galleries is that even if you do want to support them, and I obviously do, you have to think about the, the wider picture of, of what might go on. And if the situation was unsustainable before, unless there's a huge injection, my £5 is not going to make a difference uh, in the grand scheme of things. But the sad thing is, we've all grown up being able to access all this culture for free. And it seems horrible to think that, that might soon not be the case if they can't, you know, make ends meet and it's not worth their while to do so. So, yeah, I'm not going out, but also feel really torn about this whole situation. Podcast at wired.co.uk. If you're living in a country that's coming out of lockdown or has been out of lockdown for quite some time, how much of your normal life are you getting back to? What are you nervous about doing? What feels like a sensible thing? to do how are you navigating your way through this new normal do let us know the podcast inbox has been a little bit quiet recently we do like getting your emails podcast at wired.co.uk our second story this week is about plastic amit was that a continuing joke there was that just a little it was that i like that was a, it was. the rule of three yeah i like that i wasn't, I wasn't sure <laughs> I'm not sure what you were going for there. Eventually it will be your time, Amit. Matt Reynolds, tell us about plastic. Yeah, so I think we spoke about uh, right at the beginning of this you know, outbreak, maybe a couple of weeks in, we, we talked about how the coronavirus pandemic has kind of given us a glimpse of what a slightly better environmental uh, life might be. So we saw cities, I see, you know, I remember, uh, you know, Mumbai was, you, you could suddenly see the horizon and, and you know, all these kind of places where pollution was, you know, not so much of a factor because all this travel had reduced. And we also saw that, uh, you know, carbon, carbon emissions were reduced by, I think the projections around maybe between seven and 10% for the year. So we saw all these kind of positive stories about what would happen where everyone just slowed down. We, we stopped uh, producing so many emissions, but there is a kind of dark side to all of this because although, um, you know, all these emissions have, you know, reduced, now we're emerging from lock- lockdown. One thing is becoming pretty clear and that is that plastic is back with a vengeance. So Efforts to reduce the spread of coronavirus have been quite, you know, appropriately ramped up hygiene measures. So we're seeing a proliferation of sneeze guards, right? You know, I went to Tesco's the other day and they had sneeze guards everywhere and even in places you wouldn't necessarily expect to see them. And we've also seen an increase in single-use plastic packaging. 
alongside that, commitments to tackle plastic waste have been put on hold or they've been kind of eased slightly. So the UK has delayed its ban on plastic straws. And in the US, many states have delayed or reversed bans on plastic bags. So what we're kind of seeing is, as the lockdown is easing, plastic is returning to the scene. I guess there are other situations there where we would ordinarily be using plastic where we're not at the moment, like going to a festival or something like that, or, you know, going to a pub and a pub garden and drinking out of plastic pint glasses and things like that. So does it not kind of balance out a bit? So yeah, we're, we're using loads of PPE, but then we're not using plastic that we would be using if we were going out in other situations. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, and I think it'll be a little bit of time before we get a really good sense of what the overall production of plastic has been in this period. But what is true is that we're using plastic in situations that we'd already moved away from it. So a really obvious one is, uh, you know, personal protective equipment, PPE. So by late June in the UK, two billion items of PPE have been delivered to medical and care staff uh, across England since the start of the outbreak. And 28 billion items had already been ordered. And we're already seeing this, um, uh, you know, this, this PPE end up in, ending up in the ocean, uh, in the open ocean. We've also seen shops, we've seen restaurants and offices are installing Perspex screens in the hope of reducing droplet transmission. In fact, the, the brand Perspex increases acrylic sheet production by 300% between February and March. And in the US, plexiglass is up 30 fold so and this is although this isn't kind of single-use plastic it's really quite difficult to recycle these things and it's unclear what are going to happen what's going to happen to these screens when they're no longer needed and you can get a sense of how much this is growing on the whole if you look at the um you know the overall growth of the packaging industry so in may the global market for packaging was projected to grow by 5.5 percent during the pandemic and that was mainly led by plastic and the UK's Food Service Packaging Association reported in April that single-use cups and wrapped single-use cutlery are in kind of unprecedented uh, demand. So what we're seeing is that actually all these types of things that, um, you know, yeah, these single-use cutlery that we, we kind of knew about that weren't used super widely, now they're coming back in massive vogue, even though we've been trying to wean ourselves off them so yeah certain things aren't happening you know we're not seeing flights so we're not you know having all the kind of uh, yeah, plastic things that go in that little kit that you get on an overnight bag but you're seeing lots of different areas that have returned to plastic that had left it behind in the past and the huge demands on manufacturing to make this stuff it's just incredible there was a i would say wonderful an, an unusual photo i think it was from thailand of um, some primary school children all sitting inside repurposed voting booths so they cut the bottom off the voting booth dumped them on top of a desk and each child was kind of in its own self-contained bubble in this classroom so they were using recycling them as as sneezing guards so obviously some people are, are seeing this need for greater project protection and, and taking more um innovative ways of of getting hold of um, protective material um, but it's not just that we're producing more plastic but it's the existing commitments to reduce the use of plastic that have been walked back so that's another issue that's coming in here isn't it yeah and i think you know if you kind of remember even anecdotally over the past couple of years we saw uh you know talk about plastic straws being banned we saw in 2015 the um the plastic bag tax it's felt that um you, you know certainly the kind of conversation around plastic has become really really loud and really center central uh, you know, in the kind of public debate. And there was a lot of movement, especially around that in the UK. And now we're starting to see that that momentum is 
rightfully really heating up against this pressure that is well actually single-use plastic is kind of really useful in lots of circumstances you know I, I spoke on the podcast months ago about the NHS and it's you know reducing its carbon footprint well we know healthcare uses lots and lots of plastic because it's kind of the thing you need to use you need to use packaging if you're you know having syr- syringes or if, you're, or if you're having certain things that are only ever one use but yeah like, like you said James we're also seeing this kind of delay of things that were you know in progress and are hopefully going to be quite quite useful so the UK has already delayed its ban on plastic straws and stirrers I think was meant to come in to place this year. Starbucks also stopped accepting reusable cups despite more than 100 scientists signing an open letter saying there was safe to use if basic hygiene is employed. I think that a couple of other high street coffee chains had a similar um, policy and then walked that back quite quickly so they now do accept reusable cups we also saw the uk government suspend its 5p plastic bag fee like i said that was introduced in 2015 for online supermarkets uh, making deliveries during the pandemic and that's a lot of plastic bags so tesco alone said that online sales uh, rose by 48.5 percent in the three months to uh, the end of may so what we're seeing is is you know all these areas where actually you know the government have been trying to put a little bit of pressure saying actually you know what um tesco doesn't need this extra pressure of this 5p bag tax at the moment let's kind of ramp off this so a lot of uh, people in the you know the environmental space are worried that this is the excuse that government was looking for to start to really ease off the gas on you know pursuing these policies I mean, all of this is incredibly depressing, isn't it? Because, I mean, it's, it's basically the small steps forward that we took a few years ago and, and the kind of incentive, even culturally, to start using things other than, you know, plastic straws completely falling by the wayside. But but is this is this going to impact our, our, our attitude in the future, do you think? Or, or do you think things are going to go back to normal once the coronavirus crisis is all over? It's really difficult to tell. I think one thing you have to look at is not just the... Uh, demand for plastic but also the supply of it so plastic is essentially it's made from oil right so oil it tends to be uh you know you have oil producing companies and they will tend to siphon off some of their supply to make you know virgin plastics right so non-recycled plastics and one of the problems is is with the economic dynamics of the coronavirus pandemic is that we've seen a massive reduction in the price of oil and that's because we're basically not you know there's there's way less transport going on and what that has done is in turn it's pushed down the price of virgin plastic because all these oil producers are saying oh well we can't produce oil let's try and produce as much plastic as possible because we know that is something people want but what happens as soon as you start supplying you know um, increasing the supply of plastic is the price goes down and that's really important for companies that make recycled plastic because what they're trying to do is create a really pure product that can outcompete virgin uh, plastic and what we're seeing is a lot of people in the recycled industries are saying we can't compete anymore right it's really expensive and and resource intensive to take this old plastic and turn it into a new product there's loads of you know purity tests you need to do just just separating these things is really really difficult so they're saying well actually this could really dent our ability to do this in the long term and these already exist on really really super slim margins we're seeing in you know different parts of the world i think malaysia where a lot of our, where a lot of um you know plastic sorting ends up being done that people you know aren't going to work because they don't want you know because for, you know, for obvious reasons they don't you know they don't want to work alongside other people so we're seeing plastic that's not being sorted there and is ending up in the ocean 
So I think the thing that almost you've got to think of is not just how much for plastic we're using today, because I think that there is a certain amount of inevitability here, right? You know, as I said before, certain things will be used and, and you know, that, that's to be expected. But are we going to see the survival of these plastic recycling companies? Are we going to see the survival of these industries in different countries that we rely on to you know, recycle and sort the end product? And that what you don't want to see is that on the other side of this pandemic, that they're the industries that don't kind of hang around. And actually, the oil industry has to pump even more money because its long term prospects are you know, not that useful. And that's a worry that a lot of people have more generally is that as oil becomes less in demand, they're going to try and you know, change to kind of producing more plastic. So I think there really is this kind of long term concern that we might not find it so easy to get off plastic altogether. What can people do on an individual level? It's it's one of those questions that always comes to mind when I read articles about plastic pollution or environmental impacts of things like what can I as an individual do? And I guess the answer here, based on what you're saying, is nothing. It's a systemic thing. The scale of this potential problem is so huge that on an individual level, it feels nice to use a um, a, a a cup rather than a plastic cup but that's not going to do a whole lot in amongst this sea of of plastic and systemic problems in how it's recycled and processed yeah i think there are a couple of things you can do you know you could for instance write to your mp and say look we want you know uh, you know better laws on on recycling plastic or we want better support for the recycling industry so i think that's really really important i think that you can you know there are companies that make um you know, really quite amazing stuff they make face masks out of wood pulp and there's all kind of innovative, innovative projects but i think that you're right james i think you have to be realistic and say that as an individual um you know there's there's a certain kind of there's only a certain there's only a certain amount that you can basically do but i do think it's important to make it clear you know your expectations to lawmakers and try and kind of get your voice heard um and also it's worth putting into the mix that actually plastic is only one part of the equation right you know uh where you're traveling and where you're eating really matters as well so i think that while it's easy to say i'm doing a great thing by using a recyclable cup maybe you want to think about what you're putting in that cup right milk has a much higher your cow's milk has a much higher uh dairy footprint than soya milk or something like that so i think you want to see it as part of a kind of holistic whole and um you know you know, never stop bettering yourself is what i'm saying uh yeah there's lots of things you can be doing but i wouldn't sweat you know drinking beer out of a plastic cup too much inspiring words our third and final story this week amit your moment has come to talk Finally. to us about chicken. Yeah, so, sort of chicken, yeah. Um, so it's actually a story about cinemas uh, and this <laughs> elaborate kind of game of chicken that's being played by, by cinemas, um, which are allowed to open in the UK from this weekend. Uh, so I'm assuming you guys are all ready to go to the cinemas. You're, you're not going to museums, but you're, you're going to be heading down to your local cinema to see one of the hot new releases. I don't think I'm a particularly good example of this because I never went to the cinema before lockdown anyway. Matt Reynolds, I think you you frequented the cinemas of, of London before lockdown, right? I've, I've definitely been to the cinema in my history. <laughs> but my, you know what? I was very good because our local cinema upgraded to, you know, um, a luxe version and it was really cool because it had all these seats and they're really relaxing. And actually, I was wondering, Lux Cinemas could be quite good because the seats are really far apart. So I was super prepared to get back in there. But my sense is there's not really any films to go and see if I did turn up with my, you know, my own plastic wrapped nachos. Yeah, 
And a lot of so actually, although cinemas are allowed to open this weekend, like a lot of them are actually not doing that. Um, it's been a really difficult time for the cinema industry. Cinemas have already lost about five billion dollars or more since the pandemic started. But so you, you kind of think they'd be like raring to go, like pubs have been, like restaurants have been. But actually, a lot of them decided to just not open yet. So Cineworld, the big chain, had originally planned to open on the tenth, but it's delayed now until the end of the month. Picture House and View have done the same, um, and it's not just cinemas as well. Like the the big the summer's biggest films keep getting pushed back and back and back. So, Tenet, which is the new film from Christopher Nolan, has been pushed back several times, from kind of mid June to July. Now it's slated for kind of early or mid August. So this is really weird because you know we've heard from a load of industries. You know, pubs, for example, they are absolutely gagging to get back. Gyms, the same, right? They they're saying we can open in whatever form we want to be there. And my sense is is that there are some. But, you know, there are some films like The Quiet Place 2 that, like, was released, but they're not really because cinema's closed and stuff. So what's going on? Why is no one, you know, you know, rushing to open their doors? Yeah, so it kind of goes to what you said before. So my, my theory, and this is a, a very much a personal theory of mine, is that there's this, basically this giant kind of uh, standoff. It's a, it's a giant game of chicken between the distributors, the cinema chains and the moviegoers. So there's no point opening a cinema if there's nothing on that people want to come and see. And at the same time, there's no point releasing a film if there's nowhere for people to go and see it uh, or if people don't feel confident enough to go and see it in the cinemas because they don't feel like they're going to be safe. So, and, and it's different with films as well. It's not like opening a pub or a restaurant where you kind of get multiple bites at it, right? Like if you don't sell enough pints on opening weekend, then you can sell more pints the following week. You know, if you're a film distributor and you've spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a you know, Christopher Nolan film with all the you know, time travel and weird camera angles and stuff, it's going to be, you know, that's kind of a one-time deal, right? If you play that card and it doesn't work, you can't just re-release the film a few months later. You know, it's um, it's very much a kind of one shot that you get. Um, and when something like Tenet moves, when something as big as that moves, that has a knock-on effect on every other film on the schedule and kind of drags everything back and back and back. So lots of other films have also been delayed as a result of, of a big film like Tenet moving. This weird game of chicken that you're describing between the distributors, the chains and the cinema goers kind of reveals the mechanism behind what films are released when. And as you say, Tenet is causing this massive backlog. Nothing wants to release until Tenet releases. So how do cinemas choose when to release their films? And does this change in any way because of the the lockdown and the backlog that we've got of films? Yeah, someone we spoke to described it as like a big fish and then like a shoal of smaller fishes kind of moving around to, to compensate for the movements of this one big, uh, yeah, big fish. Um, so we, in the last issue of the magazine, actually, we, we profiled a company called um, Gower Street Analytics who they make the kind of algorithms and the software that help cinemas choose when to release their films. So, uh, and also things like, you know, how many staff to have on and rotor on a particular day or how much popcorn to buy because they can tell based on the genre or the time of year or what other films are coming out like how many tickets are likely to sell even how much popcorn you're likely to sell right like different films probably attract different levels of popcorn buying than than other films right um and um this company's obviously been very busy during the pandemic kind of as huge titles shuffle around so even like right in the early days of the pandemic before uh, i think it was even before lockdown even started we saw the james bond film that was supposed to be coming out in april get pushed back to the end of the year and now to the following year um so this software kind of takes into account a huge range of factors that can impact how well a film's going to do. That can be anything from the weather at that time of year that's predicted, or you know uh, if there's like a particular video game coming out. So Iron Man in 2008 had a really bad opening weekend because a, a big video game came out that weekend and everyone was playing it. And then in the second week, it recovered because it was the same kind of audience. Um, there's even things like uh, if the country like 
progresses further than expected in the World Cup, that can have a massive impact on cinema audiences. So they'll, they'll have, you know, something in this algorithm or something in their software that kind of predicts how well a particular country is going to do in a sporting event and the impact that that might have on ticket sales for a particular type of film. Um, so now the one thing they've got to add to that is kind of the consumer confidence. You know, do people feel safe to go back to the cinema and how does that vary in different markets? Do you get the impression that people are feeling safe? Because we, we've all seen those images of what cinemas would look like sort of socially distanced. You have, you know, all those seats and then separate other seats. So even though you're indoors, you're not sort of like you're in a bus or whatever. It's not like you're going to have crowds of people all there. I mean, do you, do you get the impression that people actually do want to go back to the cinema that was so starved for any kind of entertainment uh, that they were just going to go there anyway, even though this might not be super safe to go so. Yeah, so I was kind of like thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not particularly fussed about going back anytime soon. You know, there's more than enough entertainment uh, on, on streaming services, on TV, etc., to kind of keep me occupied. But I think it, it kind of cuts differently across different parts of the population. You know, if you're a, a young family with kids, you might want to go to the cinema just for something to do, right, just to get them out of the house for a, a little while. Um, and the evidence from other countries kind of suggests that people are willing to go back. So in France, um, they sold more than a million tickets in the first week after cinemas reopened. And there were some surprising stats in that. So 18 to 24-year-olds were more likely to go back, but also over 55-year-olds. Um, people were worried they wouldn't be rushing back to the cinema, but actually they were above average in terms of buying tickets. Um, in the US, research um, from National Cinemedia shows audiences are really excited to return. 92% are looking forward to cinemas reopening again. Uh, in the UK, the Film Distributors Association has been doing sentiment tracking and 75% of the people they surveyed said they'd go to the cinema. Even, and that's even with kind of big blockbuster films like Tenet and uh, Mulan moving back. Can I just say, I am stunned that a company called National Cine Media finds that people are excited to go to the cinema. Yes, I did tell you that. I just to chip it. Yeah, that's that is a fair point. Um, but I so, take your point. It, you know, it makes sense. I mean, I would, I would say I'm excited to go back to the cinema. I do, I do, you know, I do want to go. I like the idea of being back in it. So, yeah, it, ma- it makes sense. Yeah, I think it kind of, it kind of goes to like what people's appetite is for, for, like I think you can kind of split people into two groups at this point. People that are really like not that worried anymore about the disease and people that are still quite anxious about it. And actually, I think if you're if you're willing to go to restaurants and pubs, there's no reason why you shouldn't go to the cinema. And if you're not willing to go to restaurants and pubs and museums, then you're probably not going to be willing to go to the cinema. Um, the the, the theatres themselves have kind of invested in, in a lot of money in kind of making people feel safe, which I think is really important. So they've spent a lot of money on cleaning technologies, you know, machines that can kind of cleanse and sanitise a whole auditorium in a few minutes um and i think that it's going to be really important like they how they communicate that it's safe so you know if this first weekend goes well and there's like you know shots on the local news of you know bustling cinemas and but not too bustling you know uh appropriately packed cinemas and people having a good time and you know it, it looking fun and them not being worried uh, and everything running smoothly then i think it's going to make people more inclined to return um and what we have seen actually for cinemas that are reopening this weekend their ticket sales are actually pretty good so screenings for Parasite are apparently sold out at one chain um, although obviously with social distancing that's still fewer tickets than they would normally have sold for Parasite um, but that's a film that came out several months ago and you know it's quite a, a long tail but I guess if you missed it in cinemas and then lockdown happened and you've been desperate to see it the whole time you might you know jump at the chance at this point. You know when you sit down at the cinema and they'll play in amongst the trailers there'll be like a reminder to go to the lobby and get yourself some snacks or if it's an IMAX it will show that it's an IMAX and have all the trailers showing all the whiz bang stuff that it can do audio visually do you think cinemas are going to have flashy trailers explaining that they've just misted the entire auditorium 
using disinfectant and then all the handles on the doors are disinfected and you know this sort of security theater that makes it feel like you're way way safer than than you even need to be and they're going above and beyond to persuade you to get in yeah you have you have simon Pegg doing a little sketch about you know how uh, <laughs> how they clean the cinema and um what's his name um the guy from the office you know he's he does it always does those kind of like little promo uh promo bits for like the bfi and things like that um yeah and you can easily see that sort of thing coming in on flights and all sorts of other industries where people are maybe apprehensive about about heading back um so what is the hold up if the cinemas are opening if some films are coming out is it just a case that we need a blockbuster to move before everything else can yeah possibly so i think so one person said that like one person i spoke to for the story that i'm working on kind of said that we might see kind of the the hardcore kind of you know real cinema lovers kind of more inclined to go back earlier where there's stuff that maybe only they are interested in whereas if you're you know uh, someone who maybe goes to like two or three films a year goes to the big blockbusters you might not be too um too fussed about going back straight away um and um it's partly because movies are such a kind of global thing so for certain titles um distributors can't release them in one country you know without releasing them everywhere so that christopher nolan film for example it's something that kind of has to be released at the same time everywhere so that's been pushed back although it may be safe to release them release it in a particular country they kind of want to get that worldwide you know event cinema over coming out in the same place every time and for them it means it's kind of worth waiting and releasing it when it's it's kind of safer to do in a broader range of countries um but for some change, I think it's still going to be about the kind of economics of it, particularly like bigger cinemas where lots of screens where you kind of need a minimum number of staff and a minim- minimum number of customers to, to make it worth opening. So in the UK right now, those staff are probably on furlough. And, you know, there's a, there's a kind of risk calculation to be made of like whether it's worth taking them off furlough and then not being able to cover their wages from ticket sales. Uh, and then there is also concessions, James, as you said, you know, going to the lobby, buying popcorn. You know, I might be willing to um sit in a cinema and watch a film with a mask on but maybe i'm not going to be willing to like you know you know stick my hand in a bucket of popcorn and eat popcorn and and, and that's where a lot of the, the revenue comes from and that could actually be damaged even if people are willing to go back you mean to say that cinemas make a lot of their money from flogging popcorn for 15 quid <laughs> that, that's exactly it you, you learned it you heard Shocked. it here first yeah <laughs> <laughs> there's also streaming right when the lockdown started a few of the big distributors um put a few of their films onto either streaming services or you could rent them through Google Play or Apple Movies or whatever it's called. That's not really happened. I can't imagine Christopher Nolan being particularly pleased if whoever's distributing his film, Tenet, decides to put it out on streaming services first rather than making people pay to see it on an IMAX. Yeah, someone I spoke to earlier kind of said, rather cruelly pointed out that I think if you think your film's good, then you don't release it straight to streaming, even now. Um, so the ones that have been done are like um, that Artemis Fowl film uh, went straight to streaming when it was supposed to get a cinema release. Uh, Trolls, Trolls 2 World yeah. Tour. Trolls 2 World Tour apparently made $100 million on streaming, uh, which is, you know, a lot. sounds like a lot, although apparently that's what it would have been expected to make, even if it had already been in cinema. So, um, you know, the good films have kind of been held back because cinemas are such a lucrative revenue stream for... Um, for, for film distributors that they haven't really bought into this. Uh, the one exception to that is Hamilton, uh, which is coming to Disney Plus uh, this weekend. Um, that was originally supposed to come to cinemas uh, in October next year. So they've brought that forward by like more than a year and put it onto streaming. 
services but i think that's part of disney's kind of wider play uh you know that's a really really big like weapon in their arsenal and they've just decided to take a gamble on it and in the hope that it's going to drive a lot more disney plus subscriptions yeah and when you're disney and you own the streaming service and the intellectual property and all the distribution rights then it kind of makes sense to get something out there to drive those subscriptions and build the hype around this platform that you've built but it's it's an interesting point like what films are worth releasing straight to dvd if you like in in the old terminology and something like trolls 2 world tour it's a film for families you can imagine lots of people who are stuck on lockdown with kids at home oh well let's have a night at the movies and and sit down and watch um something special but for a big budget blockbuster that's meant to be seen on the big screen first or that's what the industry puts forward you can see why there's this real reticence to jump straight to streaming services because potentially something that you've spent tens of millions of dollars on absolutely flops at the virtual box office yes exactly and it's still expensive right i'm not that willing to spend 15 pounds on something that i'm going to stream you know i'd rather wait and spend you know a similar amount of money to see it in the cinema uh you know even if it means waiting a few months or you know not seeing the best films or whatever podcast at wired.co.uk if you're not heading back to the museum are you heading back to the cinema let us know uh what you think of that story or anything else that we've talked about on the show this week speaking of podcast at wired.co.uk one email that we're going to bring on to the show this week who wants to take this one on natasha well volunteered all right it's because it it genuinely irks me so much as well so I feel quite identified by this Good old, I can feel a rant brewing um, so we got an email from Dorana who writes that she was compelled to do some mask shaming on Friday for the very first time she describes she was on an Arriva bus in Liverpool when a lady not wearing a mask was allowed on board and then spent the rest of the journey coughing she confronted her on board this bus and she said she didn't have COVID-19 and she shrugged her off and the bus driver who was also not wearing a mask didn't say anything unfortunately bus drivers aren't always willing to enforce these rules she says she thinks that the only way forward is for buses and public transport to have masks available for purchase on board she said unfortunately we can't expect bus drivers to take the role of policing but my bet is if you force to purchase a a mask on board you're more likely to wear it and she also said what is it with people wearing masks below their noses a hundred percent anyone who's taken a train or a bus in like the last few weeks has been telling me the same thing which is that people are just rocking on with no masks on and because it's not technically law um it's it's not like enforcing law to to have to wear a mask people feel like it's a kind of optional thing and it's very difficult to approach someone and ask them why you're not wearing a mask or don't come near me because a it's not deemed socially acceptable and b (laughs) um, people can actually say you know i have an exemption a medical exemption it's very difficult to prove otherwise so really really awkward situation where it's again sort of like being at the top of a double-decker bus and you see someone misbehaving and you wonder whether you should kind of do the english thing and pretend it's not happening or whether you should intervene and potentially you know engage in conflict so it is a weird situation something that we've we've spoken about on the podcast before because um it's it's a strange thing to see that a lot of people in shops and public transport are not wearing masks themselves even though they might be employed to 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 be there and give that service it's a very strange situation um and regarding mask shaming and intervening as Dorana did it's it's really difficult isn't it because 
you'll have maybe seen people on public transport in the past, I don't know, playing music out loud or throwing food all over the floor or generally being loud and disruptive. And we consider that to be antisocial behavior. Well, not wearing a mask when you're required to isn't just antisocial behavior. It's potentially dangerous behavior. But people in those sort of situations can get very, very confrontational. You know, you're not invading their space, but you're coming over to them and, and telling them how they should behave. Mm -hmm. And you can quickly escalate a situation where you're putting yourself in danger and it becomes very, very difficult to regulate this sort of stuff. And I think what we talked about when we were um, discussing mass shaming on the podcast a little while back is you need a critical mass of people to be behaving in an appropriate way in order for it to become a social norm. And I think um, Donald Trump was interviewed recently in the US and one of the questions put to him was, Mr. President, no one's seen you wearing a mask mm. yet. You know, we're suggesting that Americans wear masks. Why aren't you um, shown wearing one? And he kind of, in a very Trumpian way, he fluffed his answer and started talking about Hillary Clinton. But what he said is, oh, I'm, I'm wearing masks. You just haven't seen it yet. And in the UK, we haven't seen Boris Johnson wear a mask. Mm. And there's still, I think, real power in the newspapers and news broadcasts and social media being able to run an image of Boris Johnson, Michael Gove, whoever it may be, wearing a face mask while doing a public engagement or out and about. And if they're not doing that yet, then an awful lot of people aren't going to be doing it either. And it's a, it's a really big problem. We're seeing how effective mask wearing potentially is to slow the transmission of the disease. And the people who are saying maybe you should wear a mask aren't doing it themselves. Uh, thanks so much for getting in touch, Dorana. Podcast at wired.co.uk with any of your emails. We really do love hearing from you. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for listening as always. We will see you again, same time, same place next week. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye. Bye.